You know, Fatine, uh, Emery already said it, but Fatine's been um, bringing young, young and older, but young people to do this every year for the last however many years, eight, nine, ten years, and meeting with MPs and sharing their hearts. And so it's just an awesome thing, isn't it? And that's a good segue into my message today. <laughs> Why not? Talking about the kingdom of God. So I haven't spoken in a couple weeks, uh, but we're in, the, we're in the middle of the series on the kingdom of God. And, and I'm excited because, like I said, I, I've been wanting, I'm excited because the Lord's been speaking to me about this uh, series for a while. And, and so now we're in the middle of it. And so for those of you who are new or haven't been here, essentially, uh, I made the point, and now we have a podcast, so you can get the, the downloads uh, online if you want, or on our Facebook page, of the previous messages, because uh, a lot of what I talked about will honestly make a lot more sense with where we're going, and that's why I spent so much time building that foundation. But... Uh, the reason that I'm, this, this series is so important is because understanding the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial for understanding the teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm, I talked about this previously, so I, don't, I, I have new things today, so I don't want to belabor it. But just for those of you who weren't here, Jesus talks about the kingdom uh, more than anything else. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. Like in the book of Matthew alone, he mentions the kingdom of God 49 times. And almost double that if you just have the word kingdom. And so he's always talking about it, his beatitudes, his uh, parables. Now, the, the, the travesty, really, I, in fact, actually, I'm going to say this, is that the, all the evidence lead us, leads us to that conclusion, that he was all about the coming of the kingdom of God. And I have just three references there. If you look at the Synoptic Gospels, all of them summarize Jesus' ministry in terms of the kingdom of God, okay? So since this is true... It's imperative for us to understand what the kingdom of God means, right? I mean, if Jesus was all about the kingdom of God, and he talked about it all the time. Now, the problem is a lot of us don't even think about the kingdom of God or hear much about it. You know, like I remember when I first talked about this, I asked how many people haven't even heard a message on the kingdom of God. And there's a number of people. So the question is, what is the kingdom of God? And that's, that's what we're trying to answer. That's what we're spending a lot of messages in a series on trying to answer because the answer to that is absolutely fundamental for understanding not only Jesus but the New Testament because the, the kingdom of God provides the framework from which everything is to be understood. Christian ethics, the way we're supposed to live, all of, all of the things that you read in the New Testament is to be understood in light of the kingdom of God. Okay, so it's not to say the kingdom of God is necessarily the most important topic. You could say maybe love is or grace, but it's the most important framework from which to understand love and grace, if that makes sense. Okay, so what is the kingdom of God? I think part of the problem is a lot of people ignore it or don't, don't uh, uh, ignore is a strong word, but don't really talk about it or you don't hear many teachings because there's such a misunderstanding. What does it even mean? Right? What does the kingdom of God even mean? And right, if I asked you guys, at least before this series, maybe still now, what is the kingdom of God, we'd probably get 50 different answers. What is the kingdom? Now, now this is important because just think about Matthew 6.33. Jesus says what? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're supposed, that's an imperative from Jesus Christ. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. How are, we, how are we going to seek first the kingdom of God if we don't even know what it is, right? And so that's why it's important. That's why it's important that we get a foundation. Okay, this is what the kingdom of God is. This is what it means. Part of the problem is it's, and we're going to get to this later. Actually, what I'll do now is just, this is Mark's summary of the entirety of Jesus' teaching and ministry. Okay, so every gospel s summarizes, gives a succinct summary of, of Jesus' ministry and teaching, and they always do so in terms of the kingdom of God. So this is from Mark Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That was, that's Mark's summary of what Jesus' ministry was all about. The time you went around preaching this message of the kingdom of God. Now, what we spent, so asking the question, well, what is the kingdom of God? Now, part of the reason I think this gets ignored, and I'm saying ignored, I mean, I'm, I know there's 
people in churches who preach this a lot, I'm just saying generally speaking, is because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God is. And I think this problem stems from two things, okay? The first thing, the first problem is that there's often misunderstanding of what the term kingdom means in English. Distinguishing between realm versus reign. Now, I spent the first like three times talking about this, so I don't want to belabor the point. But for the people who are new here, just to refresh your memory since I haven't talked about this in a couple weeks, um, up until now, we focused on the first clause of Mark's summary that the time is fulfilled. And I, I spent time mentioning or describing how the word kingdom, when in how Jesus uses it, is actually in the category of time, not space. Okay, so what does that mean? It means, so Jesus says it's a time is fulfilled. Okay, it's a time in history. It's not a realm. When, when we think of kingdom, we think of geography, right? We think of like the kingdom of uh, Holland, for instance. The way Jesus is using this is the time period of a certain reign. Now, I give this example because I like it and it, it makes the, the distinguish. So just listen to the sentence. During the kingdom of George III, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. Okay. During the kingdom of George III, what word could you use in place of that? During the reign of George III. It's in that, now you can use it for both. It's in that sense that Jesus is using the word. It's a period of time when God's sovereign rule and reign, where he's going to rule over the affairs of mankind. Okay. So, we talked about this for the first three sessions about the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Okay, the language of, so that's the word time. The language of fulfillment tells us that the kingdom had become a thoroughly eschatological term related to Jewish messianic expectations, both in the Old Testament and contemporary during the time of Jesus. So if you remember during the first two sessions, I talked all about that. If you're like, what does eschatological mean? It just simply means the end, the time of the end. So in other words, by Jesus saying the time is fulfilled, if there's fulfillment, there's been promises. So, right, I spent the first couple times talking about how it, during the Old Testament times and during the stumbling on my own words, intertestamental period, there's these ideas and language that developed that was there. So when John the Baptist came on the scene and said, repent, the kingdom of God is near, everyone knew what he's talking about. Okay, so if you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, I just recommend getting the first three sessions because I want to move on from this point. Okay, so the second problem, and this is what we're going to be, oh, yeah. So I should say this. All the scriptures on fulfillment suggest that for Jesus, the kingdom of God was a present reality in his own ministry. Remember, we talked all about that, especially last time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke 4, when Jesus went from to his hometown synagogue and he read Isaiah 61 and said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, right? I'm preaching good news to the poor and all that stuff. This is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, all of these end time eschatological promises are fulfilled in my ministry. And that's a really important thing. So that the time is fulfilled and everything that Jesus is and did and said was a proclamation that their hopes for the Messiah and expectations were coming to realization in his ministry. Now, that's just this brief summary of what we've covered up until now. The difficulty, now I'm moving on, because the, the second problem with the term kingdom of God, I think, is the one that causes the most problems. Okay, so... Now we're going to shift and focus on the second clause, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, by Jesus saying that, the language at hand means it's already there. Okay, present in his ministry. We, we've already said that. But the reason this is problematic is because in the teachings of Jesus on the kingdom, it's full of ambiguity. Okay, what do I mean by that? And this is the second problem that causes, I think, most people to give up on trying to understand the kingdom of God or to spiritualize it so that the problem is that and, that, and this is most confusing for good reason, is that Jesus speaks of the kingdom in two different ways. On the one hand, he speaks of the kingdom as a future event, 
But just as surely he speaks of the kingdom as a present reality. It's both future and present. And how are we to understand that? Okay. How can something be both present and future at the same time? Right. That's the million dollar question. Trying to reckon now, this is, this is why I'm going to be spending a lot of time on this point. Because understanding this, holding this intention is absolutely crucial for understanding not only the teachings of Jesus, but like I said earlier, the entire New Testament is predicated on this idea. Okay, and so, so today I want to start, I'm going to kind of just delve into this, and then we're going to continue next time I speak, trying to reconcile this, because there's a way forward. Okay, there is, but it's going to take some time to get to there. Because what I want to do today is just show you, build sort of a foundation and show you a, just a sampling of the scriptures talking about how the kingdom's future, but also how the kingdom's present. Because that really helps us understand a, a lot of things that Jesus taught, in, taught about in his ministry. So what I first want to talk about is the kingdom of God is future. Okay? The kingdom of God is future. So... Now, this is, if you were here for the first few times I spoke on this, this is in continuity with the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. We talked all about that. And the intertestamental period, if you remember the apocalyptic literature. Talking about the kingdom of God as a future event, as a cataclysmic day of the Lord that's going to come and usher in a brand new age. Out with the old age of, the, of Satan, in with the new age of the kingdom. Okay? So, Jesus announced in many scriptures that it was still a future event. Okay, and that's really in line with even John the Baptist saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is coming in a, it's a, in a future sense. Okay, now the first thing I want to talk about, and this is a category really of scriptures that show this. And for all intents and purposes, I'm going to talk, call it the great reversal. Jesus talks about the kingdom in which the great reversal is going to take place. Okay, and I'm going to elaborate on that. The great reversal. Okay, what's the great reversal? The great reversal is the idea that in the future there's going to be a great day of the Lord. We talked about that. In which the order of life is going to be totally reversed. So this is one, I already said this, large category of scriptures of the, that have the idea that the kingdom's future, that Jesus talks about, this great reversal, and he uses this, hey, this is going to happen in the future, this great reversal. And this, again, fits into the whole prophetic ap apocalyptic idea. So here's a famous scripture to tell you what I'm, show you what I'm talking about. This is from Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. And if you recognize this, this is one of the main messianic prophecies from Isaiah. Jesus himself quotes this, and we'll talk about this later, as evidence that he is the Messiah. So this, I'll just read it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness from the, uh, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You see that? It's going to be totally reversed. If you're mourning now, you're going to have oil of joy then. Okay? So, that, scriptures like that become really important. And you'll recognize this idea, when I give you some of these scriptures, the classic statement of this great reversal, for instance, from Mark 10, 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You recognize that? Jesus says that in a whole bunch of different contexts, and I'm going to show you some of them. Because remember, the whole idea is that there's going to be a great day in which the order of life is going to be reversed. Those who are first are last, those who are last are first. The people who, th in other words, the people who think they're in the kingdom actually are going to be out. And the people who don't think they have a chance are going to be in the kingdom. Okay? I'll just show you some scriptures that, that say this in the New Testament. So this is Luke 13. Now I'm going to focus on verses 28 to 30, but I just have 23 there to show you the context. Somebody asks Jesus, 
Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And then Jesus exhorts them and says, go through the narrow gate, okay? Because many are not going to enter into the kingdom. So I'm just going to fast forward. Look at verse 28. There will be weeping, will be. He's talking future now. That's why I'm bringing this up. There will be weeping, gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will be thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that later. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and and first who will be last. You see that? So in the context, in the great eschatological day of the Lord, there's going to be this great reversal that's going to happen. And the first or last, last or first. Here's another scripture that says it's a different context now. Peter answered, this is Matthew 28, or 27 through 30. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 indiscriminate nobodies, like, you know, we think of the apostles as famous now, of course, like 2,000 years later because of what happened since this time. But you got to think, these are like 20-some-year-old nobodies who are fishermen from Galilee following Jesus. And he says, you nobodies, you who are last, are actually going to be on thrones with me judging the 12 tribes of Israel. At the time, that's a pretty, like, whoa, that's amazing, right? If you think about it that way. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Verse 30. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first in this future eschatological coming of the Lord. Okay. You also see this idea of the great reversal in the Beatitudes. So this is Matthew 5, and I just have 4 to 6 here. I had 4 to 9, but I cut it down to 3. Blessed are those who mourn for what? They will be comforted. Talking future tense. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteous, for they will be filled. You see this great reversal here, right? All of these are future tense. Jesus is announcing a future coming of God's rule in which this is going to take place. Now, here are some Beatitudes from Luke's version, chapter 6. Just notice that the emphasis is now and then. Okay, so this is Luke 6, 21 and 25. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Again, great reversal going to happen in the future. Essentially, this upside-down world is going to be put right, upright. <laughs> right? He's Jesus. All the stuff that's wrong now are going to be eliminated, and what's right is going to be put in its place. The great reversal. And like I said, that, that, that idea... I showed you Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. That idea is is part of the tradition of what the day of the Lord is going to look like. And that's why Jesus appeals to it so much. The second category of, of, you know, a motif that Jesus uses, talking about the future coming of the kingdom, is the messianic banquet. They talk about feasting a lot. How many of you notice that? Like, what's this idea? What's your thing with food? They're always talking about food. Why is that? Because that's actually part of their tradition, meaning the day of the Lord is going to be a banquet. It's going to be a feast. We're going to dwell and feast with the Lord, sit at table in his presence forever. So they had this idea and this expectation that when the great day of the Lord comes, there's going to be this awesome feast. So Jesus picks that up. Now, it's interesting because he uses this idea of the great reversal in the context of the feast, okay? And that becomes important. But essentially, the messianic bank is when God's people will sit at table at his great, uh, as his guests at the coming kingdom. So this is found all throughout the tradition. The great kingdom of God will sit at table in, the, in his feast. I already said that, but in the king's presence. And this became a future hope in Israel. So look at some scriptures here. This is from Matthew 8, 10 to 12. 
How many of you recognize this, this, this story, the, the centurion comes, right? And he says, hey, just say the word and my daughter will be healed. I don't, or my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. That's the context. And look at what he says to that. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said at those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say that to you that many will come from the east and the west and will, talking future tense, take their places at the feast, talking about the feast, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. The great reversal, you see, in that context. Into the darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, again, the great reversal is the people who have no expectation to be found at the banquet in the kingdom are going to be there. But those who totally think they're going to be there are going to be thrown out. You see the great reversal in that context. Luke 13, 28 to 30. There will be weeping. We already talked about this one, but I want you to notice now, this is in the context of the great feast. There will be weeping, gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. People come from all over, will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God, and what does he say? Indeed, the first will be last, the last will be first. The great reversal. Now, how many of you know the, the parable of the great banquet? A lot of us, if, if I said that. You know when, when I'll, I'll actually give it to you in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this parable of this great supper, I want you to notice now that we've talked about this, this idea of this supper, this feast, and the great reversal, especially in Luke's version. Now, this is kind of funny. Like, if you think about this, Jesus is hanging out teaching, and this, <laughs> this guy shouts out, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Like, I mean, how many of us ever think about the feast in the kingdom of God? Wouldn't that be fun? Like, think about this guy just shouts us out to Jesus. Like, how many of you would just shout that out randomly? Blessed are those who be in the kingdom of the feast of the kingdom of God. Like, it's so funny. Like, someone, imagine someone said that in church. I just yelled it. Like, to us, it's like, that's so random. But to them, this is what I'm trying to say. To them, right, that was part of their messianic, like, hopes of the end, like, when the day of the Lord comes, this is what's going to happen. So they're stoked about that. They're so excited about this feast. That's why this isn't weird to them, but to us, we don't even think about it. So anyway, Jesus then gives this parable of the great supper, and he ends by saying, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste of my banquet. Now, I'm just going to show you a couple verses from this, because it's a long parable, but just to give you the idea of what it's about, this is from Luke 14, 15 to 24. And this is the guy, right? They're sitting together and he said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replies and he gives this parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, talking about the kingdom, right? The father. And invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything, everything is now ready. Now, if you know this parable, what happens? They make a bunch of excuses. Sorry, I can't make it. You know, I just got married or I just got a new truck and I'm going for a cruise or whatever. They make up these lame excuses. So then, then in the parable, the guy is super mad. He's like, fine, go to all the poor people, the outcasts, right? All, go to the highways and the byways and invite them. Talking about the great reversal, right? Invite the, the ones who are outcasts, and then they all come. And then Jesus ends by saying, I tell you, not one of those who were invited are going to taste of my banquet. Talking about the great reversal. Now, why is this important? We're going to talk about the Last Supper now. Because this idea of the Messianic banquet, actually Jesus thought of the Last Supper the Lord's table as the fulfillment of this. Okay, and we often miss that. So I'm going to just show you from all the synoptic gospels what he says, and every single time he instituted the Lord's Supper in every gospel, he talks about in terms of the eschatological messianic banquet. So look at this, Luke 22, 15 to 18. I'm just going to give you snippets. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Remember, we're talking how Jesus taught kingdom's future. Also present, though. 
After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. I thought the kingdom of God was at hand, Jesus. Right? Anyway, here's a couple verses later. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, talking about the great messianic feast. This is Mark 14, 24 to 25, Last Supper. This is my blood of the, new, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new, in the kingdom of God. This is Matthew's version. Essentially says the same thing, okay? I'm not going to drink it again until the uh, new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, why am I making this point? Talking about the Lord's Supper here. This is an important thing for us, right? Communion. Notice that this, the Lord's Supper was instituted as an eschatological meal, talking about the great messianic feast. This is one of the two things, I would say, that the great missing elements from communion in the church. This is totally missing for the most part. Even though in every single gospel, synoptic gospel, Jesus says this, right? that it's going to find its fulfillment ultimately in the kingdom, but he's instituting as an already fulfillment of this great messianic banquet. So the two things I would say are missing is this, the eschatological dimension of the meal, and number two, the fact that it's a meal and not wafers and a shot of grape juice. It's a meal. And we lost that somehow. That, that's, that's one of the points of the Lord's table, is that it's a meal. And the early church, actually, if you look into it, in fact, you just read the scriptures, they had a meal. You just look at 1 Corinthians 11. Notice Paul had to rebuke them because they got drunk. Clearly not drinking grape juice is one point. <laughs> Secondly, think about the context. It's a feast, Right? How is it people got drunk at communion? Because they understood that's the, it was actually a celebration. It was actually them celebrating this great messianic banquet. Now it's prophesying at the, 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 you know, the great ultimate fulfillment of it. Now. Okay? To the point where Paul had to rebuke them for getting drunk on, right, on wine. Also, it was a meal in that context, too. So the early church in Corinth were clearly eating a meal. Because he's, okay. Anyway, that's another, in fact, I'm sure of it. I know of it for sure. I'm going to at least talk about a sermon on this because it's so important. You know, the early church called it love feasts. That was their name for communion. It was a joyful event, a celebration. Now, granted, the way we do church makes it nearly impossible to do the meal, right? Because there's what? Even here today, whatever there is, 40, 50 of us, there's no tables. Now, we have River Cafe, of course, so we can do it there. But what I want to encourage you, so the early church did church differently, and that's part, you know, just as a function of bigger churches do wafers and whatever, and that's fine. But that part of it is really an element that was important to the Lord, and, and, and we're not incorporating that in communion. I think that's important. And what I want to encourage you is you meet with believers, especially in home groups or whatever, have a meal together, because that's really how the Lord instituted it. And we might do it sometime. We've been wanting to do that. That's the thing. It's on our hearts to do a meal with a communion like that way. But thank God we have, you know, we're going to do the crackers and thing and do it together too, right? Because that's important as well. <laughs> Sorry that. Anyway, I don't mean to be, uh, that's just a tradition that somehow is a tradition and, and we lost those two elements. But I want to just say this. So the Lord's Supper is about sitting at table and it comes out in this motif of the great messianic banquet. Okay. So, in other words, that we're already eating at that table now, but Jesus isn't going to eat it with us until a new in this kingdom, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom, right? So, the Lord's table is to be understood as a fulfillment of the messianic banquet, this thing that for however hundreds of years they've been looking forward to, this great feast of the Lord. Jesus actually instituted it right then and there. 
Not only that, I already said this, but it's actually a time of feasting and celebration. At least how Jesus instituted it. I already talked about this a little bit. That in the early church, it was actually a celebration, which is awesome. Anyway, now notice this. In Revelation 19.9, we're talking about the future kingdom now. Talks about the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Right? The ultimate fulfillment of this messianic banquet. Revelation 19.9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So, it, you know, it's something we don't think much about. But that's why eating was such a big deal in the New Testament. Because they're looking forward to this awesome feast. And we should be too. Blessed are those who are invited to this feast. Now, just to give you a couple of other, we're talking about, right, just showing you King Jesus talks about kingdom as future. Talks about entering the kingdom in the future, right? He speaks about, so Matthew 5.20, for instance, you'll recognize this Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly, talking future, you will certainly not enter the kingdom, excuse me, of heaven. Matthew 7, <laughs> 21 to 23. I use a lot of scripture if you haven't noticed. But um, if, if you guys have been here, some of you since, you know, last, you guys will recognize this scripture, hey? We talked about the series on, on eternity. I use this one a lot. <laughs> this is the very last thing at the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Future tense. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I'll tell you plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Jesus also speaks of the future coming of the Son of Man. Here's just a couple scriptures on that. Matthew 25, 31 and 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed of my father. Take your inheritance, the, ki the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Future tense. When the Son of Man comes. Mark 8, 38. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then Luke 9.26 essentially says the same thing. Jesus also speaks about a future age to come. And I'm just, I'm doing this just to show you, right? We're talking about future present, okay? So I'm just showing you a sample of these. So Matthew 12, 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, and anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Remember we talked about that when we talked about the intertestamental period, the idea that there's this age, which is evil, and it's Satan's age, and then the age to come is going to be what? The kingdom of God, right? They're looking for this day of the Lord that's going to usher in a brand new age. And Jesus uses this language in this context. He also says something similar in Mark 10, 29 through 31. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left homes or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel failed to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come... Eternal life. And look at 31. But many who are first will be last and last first. The great reversal in the age to come. This is Luke 18, 29 to 30. It says something similar, right? But just distinguishing this age from the age to come. Future tense. Jesus calls for watchfulness. Okay? So this is Luke 12, 37 to 34. It'll be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait for them. I'll be, it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Matthew 25, 13. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Future, future, future. So in sum, again, those are just samples, okay, just some. 
In some, there's many scriptures that make it very clear that for Jesus himself, the kingdom of God was still a future event. Now, if these were the only scriptures, Jesus would be keeping with his companions, right? We talked about the intertestamental period, the apocalyptic literature, who talked about this great coming day of the Lord. John the Baptist was one of them, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is near, future tense. Okay, so think about it. Jesus is a Jewish prophetic figure who speaks with an apocalyptic framework and announces that people are to ready themselves for God's future kingdom. Now, if these were the only scriptures, that would be it. Clear cut. Kingdom's future still, right? Unfortunately, and this is where the confusion can come in, those aren't the only scriptures. By far, those aren't the only scriptures. And this has caused so much confusion, even with scholars. Some scholars try and say the kingdom's future, the kingdom's future, not present future. Others say the kingdom's now, the kingdom's now, not future. Others try and spiritualize it and say, oh, it's in your heart. Ultimately, the fact of the matter is it's both present and future. And you have to hold that intention. Like a lot of biblical truths that seem contradictory, they're both true. The danger is when you rationalize one away to the one, you know, just because it does, it's hard for you to reconcile, you get into error. And that's one of the reasons I love uh, not only this, but just in general, this, remember, we talked about the quest for the radical middle, the path of life. On, on the path of life, there's two ditches on either side. And remember, we talked about this a long time ago. You got legalism on one side, lawlessness on the other. The ditches on, the path, on either side of the path of life. And the problem is what happens is some people go too far and they get into legalism. And then when they get burnt by that, they go way too far on the other side and get to lawlessness. Both are errors. Both, scripturally speaking, will cut you off from the grace of Christ. So the path of life, being led by the Spirit, is absolutely fundamentally critical in the New Covenant, and that's what New Covenant's all about, because we're no longer under law. And the interesting thing is you find these, these scriptures that seem contradictory, they're not. They're both true. And that's challenging for our Western mindset that likes to use logic the way we do. And that's the challenge for us, is we got to learn how to hold both as true and not you know, rationalize the ones we, that don't conform to our opinions and ideas away, because then we get into error. Okay, so the uniqueness of Jesus' message lies in his announcements that this great dynamic kingdom of the future is already at work in their midst in his ministry. It's already here, right? So I just showed you a bunch that he's saying it's future, 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 but there's a whole bunch that say it's here, it's here, it's here. Okay, and this is really the point. We talked about Mark's, uh, Mark 1.15 summary of his, right? He says the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how we started off today. That means it's here now, present tense in Jesus' teaching and ministry. It's here already. So just for the next few minutes, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this in way more detail next time. I just want to show you a sampling of these scriptures that the kingdom's here. Okay, so... Kingdom of God is a present reality. I alluded to this scripture earlier. I talked about it a lot in detail last time when we talked about Jesus' baptism in the river and the Holy Spirit. Then he gets led by the Spirit to the desert, gets tempted for 40 days. Then in Luke 4, it says, then he came back in the power of the Spirit and he went around preaching and right healing. Then it gives this story in verse 14 through 30 where he goes to his home synagogue what does he do? He opens up the scroll from Isaiah 61, the very messianic prophecy I read earlier. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right? And then he goes through it. For he's called me to proclaim uh, good news to the poor and freedom to the captives. All of those, right? The great reversal is happening now in my ministry. Then he goes and sits down. In verse uh, 21, he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is happening. The great eschatological day of the Lord is happening now. And the great eschatological gift of the Spirit is on me now. If you guys remember in the intertestamental period, what was it called? That era between Malachi and John the Baptist where there was, there's no scriptures in the Bible. Anyone remember? Yeah. The, the, 
the quenched spirit, the time of this quenched spirit. No more prophetic voice because the Holy Ghost left us is the idea. So they're looking for the one thing that was going to mark the coming of the age to come was the spirits coming back. The Joel 2, 28 to 31 prophecy totally became the day of the Lord eschatological. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured upon his people. All of these messianic prophecies have that in common, right? The spirit of the Lord's upon me, for instance. So they're waiting. The Messiah is going to be this unique figure who has, who's the ultimate, right? Man of the spirit. And Jesus says, that's me. The Holy Spirit's back, right? In other words, the day of the Lord's here. Okay? So, already the great reversal's taking place. Already the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The prisoners are being set free. The blind see, the oppressor released. The year of God's favor has come. That's his message. The kingdom of God is here. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's here, guys. Now, <laughs> do you guys remember what happened when he said that? They wanted to stone him. They were offended, right? Wait a minute. This is, remember, this is his hometown. This is where he grew up. This is Jesus. That's what they're saying, right? We know Joseph. That's the, he's the carpenter's son. He used to play soccer with my son, Johnny. You know? And that, so then they, they get super offended. They're like, this, you're saying you're the Messiah, Jesus? And then they wanted to stone him. The point is, that's why do they want to stone him? Because he has the audacity to claim, look, I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. That's me. So he points, and I'll look at I want, I'm making this point. He points to the evidence that the day of the Lord has come because of the, remember, the great reversal is taking place. It's present now. This idea that you guys have been waiting for, the great reversal is happening now in my ministry. With, and I have the Holy Spirit on me. Now, what's interesting, this isn't the only time he points to the evidence of the great reversal. He also does so when John the Baptist questions his messiahship, okay? He also points to these promises in Isaiah 61, the great reversal, and says these things are happening now, and that's the evidence that I'm the one, okay? So I'm just going to read you this scripture. This is Matthew eleven two 2 to 5. So John, he was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and he sent his disciples to ask him. Look at this. This always strikes me. John the Baptist, the one, you guys know who he is, right? He, he's the one who pointed Jesus out and said, this is the Messiah. And he baptized him, the Holy Spirit comes on him. He's the one who witnessed all that. And then he's questioning, are you actually the Messiah? Because Jesus came in such a way that he wasn't expecting. Right? And we talked about how John's message was bad news, <laughs> judgment, bad, 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 bad news of the kingdom. And then Jesus comes, his message is totally different. Good news of the kingdom. This is actually good news, people. But look at this. So, so are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report what you hear and see. The evidence that I'm actually the Messiah. And look at what he says. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Points back to the great reversal and says, hey, look, look at what you see and hear. All of this stuff is being fulfilled in my life and ministry. So again, Jesus uses this reversal of orders evidence that the overthrow of Satan's reign is happening now. The blind are seeing. He's releasing people from oppression. And we're going to talk about that next time because this is such an important motif in Jesus' life and ministry is the holy war. And he sees this as evidence that the overthrow of Satan's reign has started because you guys remember that this age is Satan's age, the evil age, and the, age, the evidence of the age to come is, is here is that God's going to overthrow Satan. And that's happening now with the casting out of demons, healing the sick. Because you remember, if you guys remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the intertestamental period, that was evidence to them that this was Satan's age, that people were sick, that there was sin, that there was demonic oppression. So Jesus tackled those things as evidence the day of the Lord is here. Okay, the lame walk, the oppressor being set free, the poor of the good news proclaimed to him. So in other words, this is the evidence that Isaiah 61 being fulfilled in your hearing. The blessings of the great future kingdom are already present in what I'm doing is essentially what he's saying. Now, fast forward a couple verses. This is still the same context when uh, 
in the story I just read you. This is Matthew 11, 12 to 13. From, look at this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence. And the violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the, uh, sorry, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept that he's the Elijah who's to come, whoever is here is let him hear. In other words, the kingdom of God has been present ever since Jesus came on the scene. Right? Until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. And people have been entering it. Look at, look at Luke's version. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing its way into it, into the kingdom. It's here. Okay, so what he's saying here is this, this divides history. John, up until John was the previous age, until, and from John until now, it's the age to come that you've been waiting for. People, right, are entering into it already. It's a present reality. Now, I'm going to just say this and then, and then end because I want to pick this up next time because this is so important. And I just didn't, I was like, I don't have time to go in this and, and I, don't, I, I just want to end at a, at a place where it makes sense to pick up next time. Because next time I want to try and reconcile this. <laughs> so I'm going to keep you hanging. But until then, I want you just to see this, okay? So how is the kingdom present? Number one, this is a big way it's present, is the blessings of the future have already come present now. Okay, we've already been kind of talking about this. This great reversal is already taking place, like Jesus said. All this stuff's happening that Isaiah 61 has been prophesying about. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Sinners, outcasts, oppressed, the defranchised. The good news of the kingdom is being preached to them. Luke 6.20, even in, the, in some of the Beatitudes, it says this. Blessed are you, the poor, yours is the kingdom, present tense. So it's interesting. Some of the Beatitudes are future tense, some are present. It's happening now. The poor, the kingdom is for the poor. Now, we talked about the great messianic banquet, right? Already talked about the Lord's table, how that's a fulfillment of that. But look at this. Jesus sees his sitting at table with sinners as evidence that the great messianic banquet had already begun in his ministry. Okay, so you know you guys know this. How he he got so chastised from the Pharisees for eating with what sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, because right here and now the great reversal is taking place in this messianic banquet. They're sitting at table with me, these outcasts, the poor, the great reversal, the last or first, the first last. Because in their eyes, those prostitutes and tax collectors were like the greatest of sinners. And they're sitting at the table with Jesus. And the Pharisees were so offended by that. You're eating with sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. What's up with that? Because it's the fulfillment of this great messianic banquet. The great reversal is taking place now. So the outcasts and the undeserving are given the kingdom now. Right? The people who don't expect, remember, that's the great reversal motif. The people who don't expect to be there are already there with Jesus. Not, not just in the future will they come from east and west and sit at the table like the scriptures we gave earlier. They are already now sitting at table with Jesus. They're already experiencing God's acceptance and forgiveness. And what's interesting, in that context, and I'm going I'm to share that next time, but in that context, he's, it says he's sitting at table with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees are super offended. In the next verse, it says, hey, why do... John the Baptist's disciples fast, but yours don't fast. And you know what Jesus says? Why would, what are you talking about fasting? Now's the time for feasting, right? You remember he says that? There'll be a day for fasting, but the bridegroom's with them now. The, <laughs> he's using the language of the great messianic feast, and he's saying, look, I'm with them. This is happening now. Now's the time for celebration and partying, not, you know, fasting and weeping. Because he sees that as the fulfillment of the Messianic banquet in his ministry. Another major way that the kingdom is present now. Oh yeah, sorry, last slide. Is Jesus, I already alluded to this, but this is a major one, was engaging in the holy war with Satan. And this is a motif that you see all throughout the Old Testament. And the great coming day of the Lord 
was going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the Messiah overtaking Satan. And because that's so important with us, for us too, because we're supposed to be participating in that holy war, that the evidence that that's here and now, especially is with the casting out of demons and healing the sick. Okay, I already kind of talked about that. But that was evidence that the overthrow of Satan has begun. Evidence that the day of the Lord's here now. So that's why Jesus is all about casting out demons. That's why when he said, hey, to his disciples, what did he say? Go preach the kingdom, good news of the kingdom, cast out demons, heal the sick, all that stuff. Because the overthrow of Satan has already begun. And we're going to talk about that more next time. Okay, but the Messiah is taking on Satan on Satan's turf and overthrowing Satan and his rule breaking his power and stranglehold on the oppressed. Like, you know, you remember that woman who was oppressed and he says, hey, this woman was oppressed for 18 years by Satan. Isn't it right that I heal her even though it's the Sabbath? That's what he came to do. So, there you have it. A sampling of scriptures, <laughs> kingdom's future. And then a sampling of scriptures that say those the same motifs that we talked about that saying the kingdom's future is now present. And like I said earlier, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because reconciling this tension is absolutely fundamentally critical for understanding the teachings of, excuse me, Jesus and understanding the whole New Testament because that's the New Testament writers, how they understood us as Christians in the present age. Now, not yet. Okay, but we'll get there next time. So I'm going to keep you hanging. In the meantime, you can try and wrestle with that tension (laughs) and ask God for help. Okay. So I'll pray, and then we got River Cafe. I don't want to hold you up anymore, because talk about celebrating feasts, right? So let's pray. If you want ministry, by all means, um, but you can also go right ahead to River Cafe if you want. If not, have an awesome week, and I'll just pray quickly. So, (laughs) Father, we just thank you so much for your kingdom, that it's here now, present with Jesus Christ, that... You show us the way and how to live our lives through the manifestation of your kingdom in this present age. Lord, I just ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, not only in the knowledge of you, but also in the knowledge of your ways, knowing that we are kingdom children ready to do your will. And so, Lord, I just ask through these teachings, we would be ones who you would say, hey, you guys are the ones who obeyed my exhortation to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we thank you that all these things that you promised are going to come unto us as a result. And so, Lord, I just ask for grace to help us reconcile and to live on the path of life in the radical middle, already not yet, and help us just to understand what that means and what the implications are for our lives and how we are to live in light of that, in light of that your kingdom is here present and that is future. So, Lord, I just bless every single one here, and thank you so much for your kingdom. Now, help us celebrate in your precious name and feast together as a fulfillment of what you instituted 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. <laughs> so, like I said, River Cafe, it's in the um, hall over there. If you got to go, if you have a couple minutes, check out the art. It's awesome. The rest of you have an amazing week. God bless you all, and thanks for coming. Amen.